Our scripture reading this morning will be from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. Again, that's Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. To me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given that I may preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. It is a grace to preach the gospel. Out of all the ways that God wanted his word communicated, he said again and again and again that he wanted heralds to go forth and to give the message of the cross. When Paul was in Corinth for the very first time in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as he wrote about that experience, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And we think about how it is that God entrusts men like the people that you see before you today, to preach about something as glorious as the cross. I've had a hard time getting ready for this lesson because you think about the cross and the fact that it really is a nobody telling everybody about somebody that can save anybody. About how it is that we stand week after week and we try and declare with our lives, His grace reaches me and it can also reach you too. We spend the last several weeks of our series talking about the grace of God. And you remember the very first lesson that we gave a couple weeks ago was from talking about David and Mephibosheth. 
and about how grace is favor bestowed when wrath was owed. That is the divine favor that's given to mankind and seen clearly through the example of David bestowing upon Mephibosheth an ability to sit his table that Mephibosheth had no right to. Brothers and sisters, we don't have any right to sit at the table of God. It is only through the blood of Jesus that he bestows that divine favor upon us. We learned last week in talking about Naaman the Syrian from 2 Kings chapter 5 that grace is a gift that must be received by faith. That is that God bestows on all of us or allows us and has his hand open with this gift of grace that anybody can receive. But it's a responsibility of mankind to raise his hand and say, I want that in faith and obey the gospel and receive that gift from God's hand. This week, we're looking at the cross of Jesus and realizing that what grace is really is this. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And there is a number of different places that we could go to look at this. We could go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 where it talks about for your sakes he was made poor so that through his poverty you might be made rich and talking about the example of giving and how it is that we ought to be liberal givers. But we're not going to go there. We could talk about how it is that God bestows upon us his grace so much so that it transforms our life. And yes, it ought to. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6 verses 1 and following. He says, no, God forbid. But we're going to go to the cross this morning and look at that grace that God freely gave each one of us and realize, hopefully by the end of this lesson, that his grace reaches me and his grace also reaches you. We know what the cross means. To many, in fact, in Paul's day, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he said the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We know that to some people, the cross is a stumbling block. To others, it's foolishness. To some, they just can't wrap their minds around it. And brothers and sisters, we sit here this morning as people who understand the cross. But we've got to revisit the cross and look at it again and see it for what it is. It's grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. The only way that we are recipients of this grace is because of a death. And as we look this morning, you can leave your Bibles there open to Isaiah 53. We'll be referencing that passage again and again, but we're going to take a good hard look at the cross and see the grace of God bestowed upon us. Number one, what we've got to realize is the cross means grace, but that grace came through a violent death. There is violence associated with the cross. I had an elderly man at a congregation where I grew up who would always pray and he would always include in his prayers, God, give us a peaceful moment in which to die. And it didn't matter where it was. It, uh, if he was leading a prayer before uh, uh, perhaps a fellowship meal, he would say, God, give us a peaceful moment in which to die. I was hoping it wasn't right, going to be right there in the fellowship meal. But what you've got to realize about the cross is that the cross, there was nothing calm and peaceful associated with that death. 
The Romans used the cross. They weren't the first nation to do so. They weren't the first empire to utilize the cross. The Babylonians did. The Assyrians did. But what you could say the Romans did that those other nations did was perfect the amount of pain that was inflicted through the cross. Because, in essence, what they wanted to do were a couple of things. Number one, they would make it a deterrent to other criminals, to would-be criminals. You remember the rebellion of Spartacus. They crucified uh, uh, um, uh, people all along the Appian Way, about a thousand-mile journey. They crucified people all along that. They wanted to make it a deterrent to criminals. But number two, their mission was to inflict as much pain as they possibly could on the one who was dying in that stead, or in that means. You know, they didn't have a word for the pain that the cross was able to cause. We have a word for that. It's called excruciating. Literally from the Latin excruciare, out of the cross. And we use the term with regard to a headache, oh, this is an excruciating headache. You know what? We've never experienced a pain like that before. I know that many of you may be acquainted well with pain, but... There was no word to describe the pain of the cross except for this. They said it was so bad that men would often bite through their tongues because it hurt so badly. In preparation for the cross, they would take an individual and they would have him scourged. And what they would do is they would take a two-foot-high pole, they would strip that man's clothes, sometimes completely naked, and they would bend him over that pole to where the back was, skin was stretched taut across that pole. And then they would get, begin to be, beat him with a whip. Now the Jews were bound by a law that said they could only offer 40 minus 1. That is, they could only offer uh, 39 lashes across somebody's back before they had to stop. They wanted to make sure that they didn't go over. Romans didn't have such a law. In fact, the Romans' goal was to take that person in that scourging and deliver just enough until that person was one blow away from death. As they would take that whip, they would call it the cat of nine tails, and they would take that piece of leather and sometimes they would embed little pieces of metal or little pieces of bone because as they whipped that person, they would pull away and that flesh was ripped. They would whip again and that tissue was ripped. They would whip again and that bone was exposed, so much so that often they would have people that would have their internal organs being exposed. They didn't keep it just to the back. They would whip sometimes the legs and the feet. You think about Jesus having a crown of thorns pushed down on his head. He was wounded literally from the top of his head down to the bottom of his feet. And they took that back once he was done. And they put that purple robe around him. And Pilate came out and had this scourged man literally dripping with blood. And he said, behold your king. Pilate didn't want to send him to the cross. Pilate thought, this surely will pacify the Jews. This surely will be enough. But from the crowd, those hardened Jews, those men who were so envious of Jesus in the position that he commanded, cried out, crucify him. And Pilate vindicated again and again, I haven't found anything that this man was done as worthy of death. I haven't found any guilt in this man. He gave them over to be crucified. One of the things that always gets me is, they said before they laid that heavy wooden beam on him for him to carry, they took the purple robe off. Anybody ever have a wound that wasn't completely coagulated or where the blood had had a chance to, to begin to get really 
sticky, and then you pull something off of that, it sends a shudder down my spine every time I think of it. They took that wooden beam, that huge wooden piece of which he was going to be crucified, and it doesn't say, but we sing, the cross became so heavy that he fell beneath the load. They compelled a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene to carry that cross for him. They went out to Golgotha, which was known as the place of the skull. They laid that whipped back, that, that open back, that open wound on his back, down on that heavy wooden beam, and then the Romans nailed him. Romans were so good at what they did at execution that they were able to drive the nails either into the hands or down into the wrists and they were able to miss every major vein and artery that flows through there, and they were able to get it just so that that median nerve was hit. If you don't know what a median nerve is, you bang your funny bone, it's that. But again, they found that place, that sweet spot, where it is that that nail would touch on that median nerve and cause that pain again and again and again and again upon that person who was suffering that that crucifixion. Romans used a classic Y for the cross. We have sometimes in our picture books the classic T. They used either one. But perhaps one of the most gut-wrenching things about it was when they finally nailed those feet together and nailed those hands to that cross. In lifting that cross up was the jarring motion that that cross went down into that hole. And perhaps, like so many things, was leaning forward And as that man was hanging on that cross, he would have to be push himself up with his feet in order to get a breath of air. But that pain would be so severe on his legs and on his feet that he would have to drop back down once he had that breath. And he did that again and again and again. Jesus lasted six hours as that raw back rubbed up and down and up and down on the cross. There was nothing calm about it. There was nothing peaceful about it. His grace came to us through a violent death. His grace came to us through a voluntary death. Through a voluntary death. In John chapter 10, Jesus speaking of himself as the good shepherd, said the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When you get to John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the ability to take it back up again. And all through the gospel accounts, all through the record, you find that that's the way Jesus conducted himself. You know, there were times that people wanted to take Jesus after his teaching and throw him over a cliff, but they couldn't. There were times that people took up stones in order to throw him at him until he was dead, but they didn't. There were times whenever the the Jewish council sent the Roman guard to go and arrest Jesus, but they didn't. Because what Jesus did, he did on a voluntary basis. He did it of himself. Matthew 26, verse 53. On that night that they came to arrest Jesus, you remember what Peter did? As they came out of the garden and as that band of of men, the armed armed men that had torches and everything, they came and arrested Jesus and Peter pulled out his sword and he struck the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. 
One man observed this. He said, I wish Peter's aim had just been a little bit better. You know why? Peter wasn't aiming for his ear. Peter was aiming to take off that man's head. And if Peter had succeeded at that, can you imagine the miracle of Jesus, instead of putting that man's ear back on, putting that man's head back on, he had the power to do it. He was able to do it. But instead, Peter said, or Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. He said, don't you know that I could just give the word and there would be at my disposal 12 legions of angels that would come and that would take care of this. We sing, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free, but he died alone for you and me. You ever thought about Calvary from a heavenly perspective? You ever thought about those sons of God who sang for joy as Jesus, the creative power in the universe, created all that we see? And how Job says those sons of God cried out for joy at the creation. About how it is that those angels, how they were standing at the edge of heaven watching what observed on Calvary. And as they were seeing the Lord being so mistreated and being so abused and being so hurt and just waiting with their toes on the edge of heaven ready for the opportunity to where he would just have to say one single word, come. And there wouldn't have been an army alive that could have stopped them. There wouldn't have been a single soul that could have stopped those angels from rescuing the Lord and destroying humanity. But Jesus never said that word. As a lamb is led to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's the grace of God. Because he knew that was what you and I needed. He died a voluntary death. He revealed the grace of God through a voluntary death. He revealed the grace of God through a vicarious death. The grace of God came through a vicarious death. The word vicarious has the word that we talked about this morning Bible class, the word victor, one who takes the place of another or sits in the place of another. And how it is that Jesus took the place for us. He tasted death for every man. Isaiah 53, beginning about verse 4, you see again and again and again what He did for us. He has taken our transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. So many times throughout this famous Old Testament passage, Isaiah 53, again and again and again, He says He did that for us, for us, for us. Not just on behalf of us, but in place of us. Jesus took the cross that belonged to you and me, and He took that upon Himself. It wasn't just Barabbas' cross. It wasn't just Barabbas' death. But Jesus took that upon Himself vicariously. So it is that you and I might be free. One man observed these things. He said, you think about the opposites with regard to what Christ did. About how it was that He was forsaken so that we could be accepted. How He was cursed so that we could be blessed. How He was fastened so that we could be free. How it was that He was sold so that we could be purchased. How He was stripped so that we could be clothed. How He was put to death so that we could live. How it is that his foot was bruised so that he could crush the head 
and how it is that he was made poor so that we could be made rich. It's the grace of the cross. He died vicariously, but he died victoriously. The grace of God is revealed to us through his victorious death. When Jesus spoke, one of the last things he said in John 19, it is finished. Word is a word that appears across financial documents, letters of debt. And as they would stamp that, it would say, paid in full. Isaiah 53 and verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. The word for satisfied is the word that we get for eating a big meal and being completely full. I hope that you get completely full after lunch. But that was the acceptance of God of his offering. Hebrews chapter 10, in the same vein, is talking about the fact that blood and bulls and goats can never take, take away sin. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 talks about those old priests, Old Testament priests having to work again and again and again and how the rivers of blood ran down again and again and again for those transgressions of those people that continually offered day after day. And Jesus Christ, verse 12, was the one who one time for all, after he had offered himself one time, sat down at the right hand of God. His work was finished. He was victorious even though those people who were standing there at the cross thought it is finished is a cry of defeat. It was a cry of victory. Jesus Christ died victoriously. The grace of God came to us through a victorious death. But the grace of God came to us through a vain death. A vain death. You may be looking at this and saying, Andy, you just talked about the victory of Jesus. You just talked about how it was that he accomplished in one sacrifice what the entirety of the Old Testament was able to do, and that was to remove the sin. That's why the old law was imperfect, because it couldn't provide a Savior like Jesus did. It couldn't provide for us a, a satisfactory offering for sins. And you're going to tell me that death is in vain? His death is vain if you and I don't treat that grace like we ought to. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Paul, in talking about Jesus Christ revealing himself in his resurrected state to Paul, there on the road to Damascus, Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that grace of God towards me was not in vain. As you look at Paul and as you look at his life, as you look at how he described himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and saying, God saves sinners, God saves persecutors, God saves blasphemers, of whom I am chief. Paul looked at himself and he said, I fit into that category of one who needs God's grace. Those people that want to tell me the resurrection is not true have got to explain the Apostle Paul. What on earth could change this man's mind? A man who, when he was standing there at Stephen's stoning, he, he held the coats of those people, did it. He was breathing threats and murders against these people. And now, the one who was doing that was changed by the grace of God 
he didn't receive that grace in vain. As you hear this message this morning, and as you think about his grace, the grace of God's riches that came at Christ's expense, the question becomes, for those who have never known or never had a relationship with Christ through the obedience to the gospel, are you really going to sit there? Are you really going to hear a message about what he suffered on your behalf in place of you? And are you really not going to respond? Are you really not going to let it change your life? Or are you so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and so miserable because of the product of sin that you will not believe? You can have His grace this morning. But there's also the aspect of His grace towards us as Christians. Because, brothers and sisters, if I don't live as a Christian, like His grace has made a difference in my life, could it be that His grace is also in vain for me? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, talking about running the Christian race, and saying the fact that, that he said, I'm not fighting, I'm not uh, fighting like one that beats the air. I'm not running in place. I'm not boxing, shadow boxing. He said, but I'm buffeting my body. I'm keeping it under subjection, lest when I preach to others, I should be disqualified from the race. A castaway, the old King James. If we're living our lives without the grace of God in mind, Brothers and sisters, it could be that the grace of God is in vain in our lives because we haven't let us change it. We haven't taken the riches of God bestowed through Jesus Christ and through His death and through His offering for our sin and let that transform us from the inside out. I'm fascinated by the life of people who have a lot of money but don't ever let it change them. There was a lady by the name of Hetty Green. She was known as the Witch of Wall Street. Hetty Green, whenever she was a young girl or young lady, I guess, about 1864, she inherited about $7.5 million. That was a lot of money for 1864, not so much today, right? <laughs> she inherited about $7.5 million. Through her acumen to, for business sense, through her understanding the way the business world operated, by the time of I, about 1916, she was had a net worth of about $200 million, a little bit more by today's standards. That was 1916 money. But you know, something about Hetty Green was that she was a lady that never used her wealth to enrich her life. She was a lady that wore the exact, the exact same black dress day in, day out. Can you imagine how smelly that might get? She was a lady that instead of paying for a medical bill for her son, she didn't want to pay any kind of medical bill. Her son lost his leg. She was a person that in those New York winters, even back in the early 1900s, she would absolutely not turn on the heat or any kind of, uh, of, 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 of heating, central heating or ability to heat her home because she was so miserly. She had vast amounts of wealth, more than she could probably ever spend in a lifetime. But she didn't let that wealth transform her life. 
when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We've got so much more than $200 million in the bank. Brothers and sisters, because we have a grace that says God's forgiven you in the past. We have a grace that says God still loves you here in the present. We have a grace that says I've got the best prepared for you in the future. And you're going to live your life miserly. You're going to live your life being so consumed with self, being so uh, abject as far as the things of God concerned, being so apathetic with regard to the cause of the gospel that you're not going to let it change your life and you're not going to share that with somebody else. What more could he do? What more could he do? Our lesson this morning has been aimed with us being able to sing with abandon. I had a voice teacher years ago in college that was always trying to get me to sing louder, sing louder, sing louder. And at one recital, he gave me this note that I still cherish that says, Andy, today you sang with abandon. And abandoned as a good guy. I wonder if brothers and sisters, every time we come into the worship service, if we all sing with abandon and let God know how grateful we are for his grace. And we all let know God know that we appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we all let God know how it is, how much he's transformed us and changed us into different people. So much so that the people that we knew don't understand it. They look at us and say, his life is crazy. He was, just, he was going down this one path and now he's going down this path. What changed? What was different? You realize, his grace reaches me. If you need his grace this morning... You can have it through faith in the gospel, through belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, through confession of his name, through repentance of your sin and baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. You can have that. As a Christian, if you haven't appreciated God's grace and you haven't bestowed his grace the way we ought to, repent. Change your mind and your heart with regard to it. If we can help you, we want to. His grace reaches me. Let's stand and sing.